Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. If we haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name's Ryan. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. And I am excited to be wrapping up this series that we started in Easter um, called Resurrection Rumors, where we're looking at the post-resurrection encounters of Jesus. Jesus died, buried, rose again, and then shows up to different followers um, throughout a number of days, ascends into heaven, talked about that last Sunday, and we actually have one more encounter after the ascension that we're going to cover today, but I just want to recap the series a little bit to put everything in context, because I think the the whole series uh, essentially kind of hammered in this one truth, which is the resurrection encounters demonstrate God's character to his people. God shows up to his people after the resurrection, hurting, struggling, discouraged, disappointed, different believers struggling with different things in the resurrection of the resurrected Jesus shows up to demonstrate the true character of God to his people. Many of you are, have heard that uh, Tim Keller passed away recently, and so a lot of his quotes have been resurfaced online, and I heard this quote this week, and I think it really sets us up to... Uh, to kind of go back through the series, says he said, if the resurrection is true, everything is going to be okay. If the resurrection is true, everything is going to be okay. And that's what Jesus does to each different follower that he shows up to in these resurrection encounters. He shows up to Mary in the 11 when they're hurting. They've lost their best friend. Everything they gave their lives to seems to be falling apart. And he shows up to give hope to the hurting. He shows up to the Emmaus disciples who are walking away discouraged and disillusioned about what it meant to follow Jesus. And he gives those who are discouraged encouragement. He shows up to Peter who's failed epically and he restores and forgives the failures. He shows up to Thomas who's doubting, struggling with his faith, and he gives evidence to those who are struggling with doubt. And at the ascension, he shows up to followers of Jesus who seem to be without purpose, not knowing what's next, and he gives them an eternal purpose. And that is true of all of us who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus today. The resurrected Jesus gives hope to the hurting, encouragement to the discouraged, forgiveness and restoration to the failures, evidence to the doubting, and eternal purpose for those who are aimlessly stuck. That's where we've been throughout this series. And we have one more to go. I'm not going to give it away because then you wouldn't have to listen for the next 35 minutes. So let's pray, and then we'll hop into our last encounter. Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to take a look at your scriptures, take a look at this resurrection encounter to Saul on the road to Damascus. May we learn more about your character from the resurrected Jesus and how your character interacts with our brokenness in this broken world. May we learn more about who you are. God, may we know you more because we are here today. May we hear your voice. May we listen to your words and may we act accordingly. Holy Spirit, speak through me. This morning, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you want to follow along with me, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, so you can turn to Acts chapter 9. It's the main text where we see Saul's encounter on the road to Damascus, but later in Acts chapter 22 and in Acts chapter 26, Saul himself will recount this encounter. And so what I did so that we had all of it kind of in one section together is we're going to spend most of our time in Acts 9, 
But I just bracketed some, some extra items that Paul tells us in Acts 22 and Acts chapter 26. So if you see, if you're in Acts 9 and you're reading, and I add something that isn't to the Scriptures, I promise it's not me adding something to the Scriptures. I'm just taking something from chapter 22 and chapter 26 and inserting it in chapter 9. It should be on the screen. If you don't believe me, fact check me. Definitely. That's what we're all about here. So as you're turning there, um, uh, I remember a few years ago, Mercy and I were living in West Virginia, and we had some friends that lived out in the Cross Junction area, invited us to a social gathering. We're cool. We're hip. We get invited to things. It's great. Um, and we were running a bit late, of course. And, you know, when you're running late to a social gathering, there's some tension in the room. And so we hop in the car, and we're headed to our friend's house. I'd been to their – they had recently moved. I'd been to their new house one time. And what you need to know about me is when I go somewhere for the first time, I use the GPS. When I go somewhere for a second time, I try really hard not to use the GPS. And, like, I'm humble, right? I, right? I think I'm humble. So, so what I do is I have the, the address in the GPS, load it, but I don't click, like, go until I, like, don't know where I'm at. I'm like, I'm going to do my best to get there, but I'll have it ready. And so we're headed to the house, and, you know, there's tension because we're running late. Also, I'm offended. I said, I'm humble, right? And no one said anything. So if we want to set up some, like, accountability confrontation conversations, like, email uh, me at Ryan at Canvas. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, so we're running late. There's tension. I'm trying to get there without the GPS. I think I know where I'm going. Um, and so we're headed down 37. I'm past the exit for 522. And Marissa's, like, pretty sure that that's the exit. I'm like, no, it's definitely the next exit. It's the hospital road. And until I moved to Frederick County, 522 and 50 were the same road in my mind. Like, they're, they head the same direction. They look the same. They bend the same way. And so, like, Marissa was right. It was 522. But I was convinced that it was 50. And so I'm like, no. She's like, just check the GPS. And I'm like, I know where I'm going. And she knew that I didn't know. But, you know, she's a loving wife. And so she gave patience to me, even though we were already late. And so about 15 minutes down 50, nothing is looking familiar. I'm looking for, like, the Shawnee Market because that was my, my go-to. Like, okay, that's I need to turn soon after this. And so I hit the GPS. Turns out I was wrong, and we were headed in the wrong direction. Um, and so I had to turn around. But what happened there is I was blindly convinced of my own ideas. And I was hardened to the truth, and I doubled down on my own bad ideas. Anybody ever done anything like this before? So a lot of us, we've done this before, and we do it over small things, seemingly small things like how to get to some place, right? But I've been a pastor long enough to see this happen on much deeper, rooted issues. I've seen friendships and family relationships completely destroyed because somebody dug their heels in on bad ideas. They were wrong, and they wouldn't listen to anyone who loved them, who, can, who, who might be able to speak truth into their lives. I, I like to refer to this as certainty blindness. Like we're so convinced that we know what's right that we become blind to any accountability. We become blind to any other ideas. And this seems to be the main issue that the main character of our story is struggling with this morning. Saul seems to be so convinced of his religious ideology that it leads him on mission to kill, torture, and imprison the first followers of Jesus. Can you imagine being so convinced of a spiritual belief that you would be willing to murder, to 
scripture or kill someone over it. Most of us have moved past the killing thing. (laughs) But if we're honest, if we look around our social media timelines, we say some pretty mean things. We have some pretty harsh conversations with our heels dug in on our ideology. This is where we see Acts, uh, Saul in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says this, Now Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Luke, the writer of Acts, introduces us to a new character, Saul. Um, We've been introduced to him once before in chapter 7, and he is um, collecting the coats of religious people who are stoning Stephen to death. And the beautiful thing about Acts chapter 7 is right before Stephen gets stoned to death, he preaches like one of the best sermons to these religious leaders. He goes through the entire history of the nation of Israel, telling them each time and place in which they misunderstood the prophecies about the coming Messiah. It's like the most convicting, challenging sermon ever. And Saul's sitting there listening, and he's becoming enraged, doubling down on his ideology, refusing to listen to anyone that has any different idea or interpretation. And now Saul's going to double down again. Not only is he going to be a part of the stoning of Stephen, but now he's going to go 100 miles out of his way to Damascus to find more of these followers of the way so that he can torture and kill them. Before we begin to pick up our stones and throw them at Saul, let's try and empathize with his story a little bit. Saul writes this about himself in Philippians chapter 3. His background, his history, his childhood, he says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, I persecuted the church. Regarding righteousness that is in the law, I was blameless. See, Saul grew up in this religious ideological system, this framework. He was was a Jew of Jews, zealous for the law of God. And in the Old Testament, what was set up for Israel was a theocracy where God was supposed to be king. But what happened is that slowly faded away and they were sent into exile and they were now a theocracy in exile waiting for the Messiah to come. Because they were waiting for the Messiah to come, they were waiting for God to restore these promises to them, false teachers would have been an enemy to God's plan. And so because Saul is a Pharisee, he's zealous for the law of God, these followers of Jesus come in and they're teaching something that he thinks is contrary to the Old Testament law. And so he's viewing them as an enemy to God's plan of salvation. God's plan of salvation to the nation of Israel, which was also the plan of salvation to the entire world. So you could see where Saul, he's misguided, but he has this, this compassion in his heart. He wants salvation to come to the nation of Israel because then salvation will come to the rest of the world. And although from our perspective, this is clearly not God's plan, hindsight is 2020, Saul easily could have proof-texted the Old Testament to justify his behavior. Do we do that today? Do we proof-text our bad ideas to justify our behavior? 
This is where Saul's at. Stephen's sermon seems to enrage him and cause him to double down on his hatred. So, how does the resurrected Jesus interact with an angry, bitter, religious man who's digging in his heels on bad theology? A, a man that's so bitter, so angry that he's actually going after followers of Jesus. How would Jesus interact with such a man? Verse 3. As he traveled and he was nearing Damascus, I love that Jesus waited till he almost got to his destination, the point at which his heart would have been the most hardened towards followers of Jesus. As he's nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So at the point in which Saul's heart was the most hard, Jesus comes to him and lovingly confronts him for his bad ideas, for his bad theology that's leading ultimately to wicked and evil behavior. You might be thinking, a flash grenade from heaven doesn't necessarily seem very loving and compassionate, right? Like Jesus just shows up, bang, lights, Saul falls off his horse, like face to the ground. You're like, that's loving, that's compassionate. Um, but if we look at the, the following conversation that Jesus has with Saul, we'll see a couple elements that demonstrate God's compassion to Saul. First, the, the introduction, the way that he speaks to him, he says, Saul, Saul. Two other times in Luke's gospel, we see Jesus giving a similar in a, uh, introduction to people. The first is with Martha. Jesus says, Martha, Martha. If you know the story, what's going on is Mary and Martha are sisters, and Jesus is coming over to their house, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teachings, and Martha's in the kitchen, like trying to whip up enough food for everyone in the entire town, because usually when Jesus shows up, people flock, right? So Martha's like, people are going to get here, I need enough food for everyone, and Mary's not helping me, she's sitting there listening to you teach about whatever you're teaching about, I need some help. And Jesus, with compassion, says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about many things, but only one thing is necessary. And the second time he does this double introduction is to the city of Jerusalem. As he's entering the city of Jerusalem towards the end of his life, right before he's going to be crucified, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted, you to, I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And so when Luke records this, Saul, Saul, you can, you can kind of get the sense that he's tying these ideas together. That when Jesus shows up and introduces himself like this, he's saying, you're missing it. Martha, you're missing it. You're trying so hard to please me, but the one thing that matters most to me, he's missed. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you're missing it. The promised Messiah who would bring salvation has come, and you've missed it. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, you've missed it. You, you want to live for me so badly. You're so convinced of the truth of the Old Testament that when the Messiah himself shows up, you've missed it. And Jesus has this compassion for Saul. You hear it in, in this double introduction. And then... 
the first question that he asks is so important. He says, why are you persecuting? He doesn't say, what do you think you're doing? He doesn't go straight to the behavior. He goes straight to the motivation. Not what are you doing, but why are you doing it? See, one of the common misconceptions about Christianity is that God is a moral policeman obsessed with behaviors, when in reality, he's a loving father who is obsessed with your heart. And so if, if, if God was this moral policeman, he would just show up and say, you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing, stop it. But instead, he's a loving father who cares about someone's heart. How did you get here? How did you get from being a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee who loved my word so much? You claim to love Yahweh with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when Yahweh shows up in the flesh, you miss him. Why are you persecuting me? How did this happen? Jesus asked this question because he wants Saul to examine the root cause of his hatred. He wants Saul to consider whether or not is as righteous as he's convinced himself that it is. When we are struggling with sinful behaviors or attitudes, when we're trying to make a difficult decision, why is the most important question that we can ask? Because the why always has implications for the what and the how. So Jesus says, Saul, Saul, you're missing it. I love you so much. You're missing it. Why are you persecuting me? And then he says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. This is weird because we don't know what goads are. Essentially, sticks to um, poke, to, to kind of poke ox in the right direction. And so Jesus kind of knows, like, when ox don't want to go the direction that their leader wants them to go, they rebel and you get poked. It's painful, but it leads you, it pushes you in the right direction. And so Jesus knows that Saul's been convicted, that he's been working. And I, and I think part of this is Stephen's sermon, right? Like, like Saul's heard this perfect sermon about the Messiah coming. And God's just pricking his heart, pushing at him. Saul's rebelling, he's digging his heels down deep, he's He's, he's doubling down in certain blindness, certainty blindness. It's hard for you to kick against the goes. Can any of us relate? Have any of us found ourselves angry or bitter with God or his people, fighting back against his conviction, direction, or calling in our lives? Have you ever been so convinced of your own ideology that it caused you to rebel against God and ended up causing you pain? or pain to those around you. See, this passage this week has really made me consider how many blind spots I might have in my own life. How many bad ideas about who God is and how he wants me to live might exist in my mind, in my heart. And pastorally, I see this throughout our church and throughout the church in America. I see this happening mostly in three main categories. You guys have heard me say this before. I'm an equal opportunity offender, so... If you're really convicted about the first, don't worry, I'll give somebody else the second time. If you're really mad at me on the first time, don't worry, you'll be happy with me by the second time. Right? We're good? Okay. The first area I see us blinded by our own bad ideologies is we can become blinded by religious ideology. This was Saul's major issue. He was so convinced of his theology. He so loved the law of God that when God himself showed up in the flesh, he totally missed it. I can't help but wonder how many of us have dug our heels in on bad biblical interpretation or bad application of good biblical interpretation. And as a result, we've ended up rebelling against God and and our hearts was an effort to obey Him. How 
often we seek to obey God, but because we don't stop and actually listen to what God has to say to us, we, we, we create a God in our own image and we call him Jesus. And we do this on every side of the aisle with every issue. Name your issue. How often do we make God the thing that we want him to be and then call him Jesus and then proof text a passage or two where Jesus looks the way that we want him to look? and ignore all of the other passages about the behavior that we're not actually obeying. Blinded by religious ideology, I think one of the biggest examples, at least in American Christianity, is this kind of like weird Christian nationalism where we've blurred the lines between the church and the state. And we've made ourselves out to be God's morality police rather than his children who are called to introduce others to the love of our Father and invite them to be adopted into the family of God. We could proof text, morality police. We could do it. Give me 10 minutes and I could write a sermon on why we should be the morality policemen of America and I could give you a couple proof texts. But what if we're missing the whole point? What if we become blinded by our own certainty, by our own religious ideology? Okay, next. What if we become blinded by our own cultural or political ideology? Maybe you're a rejecter of religion, which would be weird that you're here today, but I'm glad. What's more likely is that you're a deconstructor of the religion that you grew up with in your childhood. But what happens to a lot of people in that situation when you're deconstructing bad religion, bad religious ideology that you grew up with is what, what, what tends to happen is we swing the pendulum and we adopt a very similar looking ideology on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. And then we dig our heels in about that and lash out about anybody who disagrees with this side of the ideology. A lot of people who grew up in unhealthy religious ideologies, we swung the pendulum from Christian nationalism to Christian liberalism, and both of these categories can be fueled by groupthink and confirmation bias. We get in a group of people that have agreed with our ideology, and we only talk to people who agree with our ideology, and we throw stones at people who think differently than we do, and we're unwilling to just stop and ask God what he might want for us. We create a God in our own image, and we call him Jesus. And this is, there's nothing new under the sun. I point this out in America, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing the same thing in the first century. The Pharisees were the conservative religious right-wingers, and the Sadducees were the liberal left-wingers, and they both got together to kill Jesus. Because they created a God in their own image and called him the Messiah. And then when the actual Messiah came, they were too hard-hearted, stubborn, and blind to see him standing right in front of them. And I'm just wondering if the same thing happens to us from time to time. If the same thing happens to me from time to time. Third category of people is just blinded by your own selfish desires. Honestly, a lot of us, we just want to do something. We want to act a certain way. We want to believe a certain thing. We want to do a certain thing with our time, our energy, our resources, our money. And we don't really care how it impacts those around us or what God might have to say about it. We become so fixated on our own pleasures that we refuse to consider our Creator's plan for our lives. 
And in the worst cases, we dig our heels down and we try and convince others to disobey God the same way that we're disobeying God so that we're not alone in our disobedience. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. He says, they invent ways of sinning against God. Worse yet, they encourage others to do the same. Blinded by our own selfish desires, we, 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 we proof text a God that allows us to do whatever it is that we want to do, and we call him Jesus. If I can be brutally honest with you this morning, I guess I'm brutally honest with myself in front of you this morning. I see all three of these categories in my own life. All three ideas in all three categories where I'm like, I really would like Jesus to be like this. Let's take this and we'll put that on my theology thing. And then I really like what they're saying over here. I'll take this and I'll put that. And like, I really want to do this with my money. And so there's a passage here and I'll do that. And I end up kind of like crafting God again in my own image and calling him Jesus. And this is what Saul was doing. He was digging his heels in on bad theology, and the resurrected Jesus shows up to him with compassion and says, Listen, I'm here. I've been here. Why? Why are you persecuting me? How does Saul respond? Verse 5 He says, Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. I said, What? Should I do, Lord? Get up and go to Damascus, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him to Damascus. He was unable to see for three days, and he did not come. So, Jesus shows up confronts Saul and his blind religious ideology, and Saul's response is two questions that I think are extremely important for us to make sure that we do not get blinded by our own ideology. Saul says, who are you, and what do you want me to do? Who are you, and what do you want me to do? And before we give Saul too much credit for nailing the quiz, Let's remember that God radically intervened and threw him off a horse with a flash grenade from heaven, all right? So it's kind of like, what, what other questions are you going to ask when that happens? It's like he nailed it, but God kind of like led him to the answers. Saul says, who are you and what do you want me to do? In Saul's Old Testament paradigm, heavenly visions or angelic encounters were not out of the realm of possibility. So when he's confronted, he wants to know who is the source. Who are you? And then he says, what do you want me to do? Who are you? And what do you want me to do? May we, may we be a people who regularly ask those questions of God and actually listen. Because I think what happens, if we're being honest, we're like, yeah, that, those questions sound great. Love that. Let's do that. God, who are you? What do you want me to do? And then we go back to the Scriptures and we proof text the, the answers that we want to be true. And we build a God in our own image. And then we say, that's the answer to the question who you are. The God that I want you to be. And man, what if we 
What if we made space for God to answer that question rather than us to answer that question? What if we allowed the whole text of the scriptures in community with other believers, led by the Holy Spirit to, to create a God in his image for his glory? And what if we'd be willing to obey him even when it's hard, even when he calls us to lay some things down that we really like? even when he asks us to go places we really don't want to go. Who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? The resurrected Jesus lovingly confronts the spiritually blind. So he tells Saul to go to Damascus, and there Jesus will answer Saul's questions. Who are you and what do you want me to do? And he'll do that through an obedient believer named Ananias, verse 10, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, follower of Jesus, already there. God knew he was going to be there. God had this plan all along. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. Ananias knows who Jesus is, so he's not shocked. Here I am, Lord. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said, him to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision... He has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Verse 13. But Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he does to your saints in Jerusalem. I love how Saul says, who are you? And what, what do you want me to do? And Ananias, the follower of Jesus, says, are you sure, Lord? Are you sure? You sure this is what you want me to do? Jesus says, he has authority, uh, and Ananias says, but he's got authority from the priest to arrest me. The Lord said, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house, and he placed his hand on him and said, so, so just to set the scene here so that we all get what's happening. The last thing that Saul says to Jesus is, who are you and what do you want me to do? He says, go to Damascus and wait for the answer. Ananias comes in, lays his hands on Saul, and gives him the answer to both of these questions. Brother Saul, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Ananias shows up to answer these two questions. First question, who are you? He says, I've appointed you to know the righteous one. Who is Jesus, the righteous one, the perfect, sinless, blameless son of God who came to be the Messiah for all people that would, that would recognize that he was God in the flesh, sacrificially loving us to the point of death on the cross, being buried and being rose to new life, delivering us. You are the righteous one. And then he says that you are my appointed instrument to proclaim salvation to the Gentiles and to kings. So essentially, if we're going to summarize the answer to Saul's question, I'm the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for, the one that's been prophesied in the Old Testament, the one that Stephen preached that sermon about right before you killed him. That's who I am. If 
Jesus, the Messiah, the righteous one. And I have appointed you to suffer for my name, to take my message of good news to the Gentiles and to the kings. And, and what's incredible here is that Saul was perfectly positioned to now do this thing. Because Saul had an incredible knowledge of the Old Testament, and yet he was a Roman citizen. And now he finds himself in Damascus, which happens to be a main metropolitan area with crossroads going north, south, east, and west to the Gentile nations. God's saying, I've positioned you and I've placed you here on purpose so that you might know that I am the righteous one and that you might be positioned to use your strengths, your skills, your abilities to go and to proclaim the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. I did not save myself enough time, so I'm going to do a couple of things real fast, all right? So not only is there individual implications to this and the answers to these questions, but there's theological implications. See, in Acts chapter 1, last week, Nick talked about the ascension. Jesus says, you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus' commands to his people. And guess what they do? They go to Jerusalem. That's it. They're just preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And God's like, hey, I told you Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem. This is fun. We're doing it. Holy Spirit shows up. Fire. People are getting saved. It's awesome. But God uses Saul's persecution. It's, it's the persecution of Stephen and his martyrdom that sends the, the church out by force to Judea and Samaria. And so God's like, hey, if you're not going to obey me, like, you're going to obey me. But just whether you want to do it now or later. So they go to Judea and Samaria. And then he selects Saul as a chosen instrument to continue the gospel to the rest of the world the known world through Rome, and then through his letters, we now read the gospel in his own writings. So not only is there individual implications, there's theological implications. Saul was uniquely positioned by God, a Roman citizen, incredible knowledge of the Jewish law in a crossroads city. I believe that if we would create space, make time to ask God those two questions and listen, I think he'd answer the question to, from us to him very similarly that he answered it to Saul. Who are you? Might we let the righteous one of God correct any unrighteous ideas that we have believed that are resulting in spiritual blindness? May we ask that question and let God show us areas of our life where we have created a God in our own image and called him Jesus. May the true righteous one correct our bad ideas, our bad religious ideology, our bad cultural political ideology, our bad selfish desires that we've proof-texted our way around. May we ask that question and allow God to show up and correct our bad ideas. Secondly, what do you want me to do? Just like Saul, I believe God has a unique calling on your life. You have skills and passions and spiritual gifts and a sphere of influence that no one else in this room has. And God has, if you are a follower of Jesus, God has appointed you to be his messenger to people all around you. Who are you, the righteous one? What do you want me to do? I have a calling for your life. Will you choose to obey me or will you dig your heels in and kick against the goats? Verse 18, at once, 
something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. When Saul asked God these two questions and takes time to listen three days fasting and praying, Jesus allows the scales to fall off of his spiritually blind eyes, allows him to see clearly for once who Messiah is and what Messiah wants him to do. I believe this is what many of us need this morning. We need a fresh encounter with the resurrected Jesus. We need to create space to ask God these two questions. Who are you? What do you want me to do? And we need to listen. Listen for his voice. Not our voice. Not the voice of all of the groups of people that we've identified ourselves with, but actually let God speak to us through his scriptures. I encourage you this week to just grab one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, read through the gospels, read through the life of Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, and ask him, who are you and what do you want me to do? Ask the questions with your Bible open. Ask the questions in a diverse community of believers. So I think so special about our church here is you can find people that will answer the question differently and use the scriptures. Talk to somebody that disagrees with you about who Jesus is. Allowing both of you to be corrected to see God more clearly, the righteous one, and make space for the Holy Spirit. If you do this, I think you'll be amazed at the bad ideas that God might correct you with. I've been doing this all week long. I haven't come to any conclusions yet, but there's a lot of things that I thought I was certain of that now I'm not so sure anymore. Don't make these decisions quickly or haphazardly. Do it in the text. Let the scriptures and the Holy Spirit and the community of believers correct you, but don't dig your heels in just because it's what you've always believed or it's because what you've always been taught is what you've always thought or because you've got two or three proof texts that you can make God say the thing that you want him to say, listen and obey. Listen and obey. What if we were a group of people that regularly came back to God with these questions, made space to listen? Saul, who had this encounter with God, had God himself answer those questions through Ananias, later would start referring to himself as Paul, and he would write the book of Philippians. And still, after years of following Jesus, still would say this, everything that I had, I've considered lost because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. My goal is to know him and to obey him. It's not a one-time thing where you hear the answer to the question, this is who I am, this is what I want you to do, and then you're done for life. Saul says, Saul got the answer from God, and years later he's saying, the one thing that I want, all that I want is to know God to know him more deeply and more intimately, to understand who he is and what the righteousness of Christ looks like in my situation. How can I be obedient to him today? 
Will we constantly be asking this question, these questions and making space for God to answer them? I ask Marissa to come up and sing a song of reflection for us as we ponder these thoughts before we take communion. This song is all about spiritual blindness. It's all about the ways in which we might have created a God in our image and called him Jesus. And it's about the willingness to lay down those ideas and those preferences and to let God tell us who he is and what he wants us to do. Let's reflect on that, and I'll be back up to take communion.